would invite you this evening to take your Bibles and turn in the Old Testament to the prophecy of Jeremiah. And I would direct your attention to chapter 2. We'll take as our text verse 19. Jeremiah 2, verse 19. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter, that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. The title of our sermon is Recognizing Backsliding. We know that our physical bodies have seasons of health, and during those periods there's a lot of physical vigor and vitality and life and energy and strength. And yet at other times we have seasons of sickness. And during those times, we languish, and we're weak, and frail, and lack uh, energy. Instead, we have pain, and difficulty, and the like. All that's familiar terrain with regards to our physical bodies. But so too with our souls. There's an analogy, a parallel with our souls. There are seasons of great spiritual vigor, outpouring of grace upon our souls, and earnestness and help and times of blessing and spiritual exercise with strength. But then there are also seasons of soul sickness, if you will, in which we find uh, within our bosom uh, weakness and we find ourselves perhaps apathetic. We find ourselves in a state of, of declension. And it is that arena of backsliding that we are turning our attention to this evening and over the next two Wednesdays. So we have tonight and then two more Wednesdays uh, before we come to our communion season. And in the interests of the reviving of God's people, uh, we will seek, um, with the Lord's help, to come alongside with pastoral care in an effort to strengthen the hearts and minds of the Lord's people in the battles and struggles and backslidings and various degrees of backslidings in which we face. And so this evening we'll begin with uh, this theme of recognizing it, recognizing backsliding, and then spared next Wednesday, we'll go on uh, to address resolving it. So how do we resolve this sort of condition uh, when we find ourselves in it? And then Uh, In the third uh, Wednesday, we'll turn our attention to resisting it, uh, standing guard uh, against it uh, from from the onset. We've spoken about sickness. You know that sickness, of course, presupposes life. Only those who are alive can be sick. And so when we speak about spiritual backsliding and uh, declension and like language, We need to recognize that we are talking about believers. Uh, We're talking about believers, not unbelievers, those that are in Christ, not those that are outside of Christ. We're talking about those who are regenerate, who are born again, who are converted, who are in a state of of grace, and so on. This is a condition that, that redeemed people face. It is not a condition applicable to those that are dead in sin. Dead souls, unbelievers, cannot backslide. They have nothing from which to slide. They have nothing from which to decline. Uh, They're dead in trespasses and sins. And so the references here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and Hosea 11 and 14 and other places that are similar, it's the Lord addressing uh, his, his own people speaking about the decline from spiritual vigor and vitality. But there's more than that, because all of that's true, and all of that is, in a measure, descriptive, and we'll hear more. 
But the Bible also defines backsliding in more ominous terms. So if you turn the page to Jeremiah 3, uh, backsliding is equated with infidelity. It's, it's equated with spiritual adultery, with harlotry, with whoredom. And so it's not just that the condition of the soul has waned and has drifted and has slidden, but there's actually a departure from the Lord and a pursuit of counterfeit loves. You'll notice in the language here in our text, he speaks of that evil thing and bitter, that thou hast forsaken Jehovah thy God. Thou hast forsaken Jehovah thy God. So we need to feel something of the weight of that. Right? We, we, people will talk about backsliding and it can kind of seem almost superficial and cursory and, well, this isn't convenient and great and wonderful, but, you know, no, the Lord gives us a sense of the weight of, of what this condition involves and the various degrees uh, that it leads to. But there's another implication as well, and that is you cannot destroy grace. So we've said that it applies to the believer and not the, the unbeliever. But you cannot destroy grace. So we're not talking about death. We're not talking about spiritual deadness in the ultimate sense. But rather we're talking about decaying. And we're talking about spiritual weakness. And what that means, why that's important, is because within our soul, within the believer's mind, within the believer's heart, from the onset, we have a note of hope. There's hope for the believer and all of the destructive influences of sin and all of the struggles and discouragements and failings and so on. There is great hope from the beginning that whatever condition of decay we're facing, the Lord will and indeed does, always does, bring us back to himself to carry us on the winds to recover us, to fill our sails, to invigorate our souls. And that note of hope is especially helpful for us. So we're speaking about uh, backsliding or spiritual declension, this, this state of spiritual decay, and languishing, the loss of vigor and joy and spiritual earnestness and animation and so on. Here's what uh, J.A. James said in 1840. Backsliding among professing Christians, if we include, as we ought to do in this term, the secret departure of the heart from God, as well as open sins of the life, is a state fearfully common. And so we're not talking about something esoteric or extraneous or peripheral or rare. We're talking about something that the Lord's people have to face and combat on a regular basis. I think one other distinction before we dive into this that, that may be helpful, uh, we need to distinguish something else as well. We need to distinguish what should be from what could be and from what sometimes will be. These three things need to be separated in our minds. What should be, what could be, and what sometimes will be. Because we're not saying that this condition should be. We're not saying that this is something that ever should be, nor uh, are we saying, and we'll really we'll consider this if the Lord spares us in a couple of weeks, that last, last sermon, but we're also not saying what could be. In other words, it is possible for the Lord's people not to fall into a spiritually languishing condition but rather we're addressing what sometimes will be, oftentimes for many of us will be, difficulty of, of backsliding. It is, there is not a straight and direct uh, road to heaven. Uh, there is forward gains and then there are backward slides. There's ups and downs and struggles in the state of the soul. And you really need very little knowledge of your Bible 
uh, to recognize this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The prophets are declaring against it with the Psalms, describe it in all sorts of different uh, ways. We see it in the life of key figures like, like King David. You turn to the New Testament, there's similar warnings woven throughout the epistles. You see it exemplified in key figures like Peter and so on. So this is something stamped on uh, even a cursory reading of the scripture, the difficulty, the reality that many of the Lord, Lord's people face. And there, really, there's two types, aren't there, of backsliding. There's both corporate and there is personal or individual. These are, are two distinct but related buckets. And so the individual, there can be, um, there can be corporate seasons of declension within the church and the individual can cave to that and be unduly influenced or sucked up uh, into that. But then likewise, the individual can undergo times of spiritual decay and that spreads like a disease to others and influences uh, the, the body as, as a whole. You have the Lord in Jeremiah 3 and verse 22 he says, return ye backsliding children, and I will hear, heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. What does this tell us? It tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ desires to heal every degree and kind and shape and size and type of backsliding that the Lord's people face. He desires to heal it. He desires the vitality and life and intense joy and strength and sweet communion that is held between him and his people. He desires for us to thrive in that fellowship with him and to be blessed and abounding in his, in his own grace. And that is helpful for us because, in a sense, I, as your pastor, am coming on an errand this evening from the great physician. It's the great physician who comes to us and who is in the ministry of his word coming along, <clears throat> coming alongside broken and battered and sickly saints, myself being a patient with you in order to bring you along and to guide you uh, to the great physician himself for healing. And so we're, gonna rec we're going to address this this evening under recognizing it and then resolving it uh, next week and then resisting it. As the old adage uh, goes, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound, or an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. And so we come to that third sermon, if the Lord spares us, uh, we'll find a special help, I think, in, in going forward. Uh, in these things. This is obviously a painful uh, part of the process, having to recognize it, having to put our finger on it, to diagnose it, to unmask it, to probe it. Right? This probing, testing, analyzing is the Lord pricking us in order to draw out and to test what is to be found with, within our, our souls. The, the bandage has to come off, the scalpel has to go into the wound in order to see what's there, what's the cause, what's, what's happening. But all of this has to happen in order to pour in the salve. All of this has to happen for the oil to follow, for the comfort and consolation and help and reviving to follow after it. And so recognizing it is actually a step in the direction of being delivered from it, of being recovered from it, which is to say that even the painful part of recognizing it is a sweet mercy. It is a mercy for the Lord to come and to show us where it is and how it is and why it is within our souls. You go to the doctor and you're feeling great and you go for your checkup and so on. He runs tests. He comes back and says, I have bad news. You have some terrible disease. Well, that's rightly devastating, right? There's pain in that anxiety and everything else that comes, comes with it. It's a burden to hear that news, but it is a mercy to discover it, for it not to go unseen and missed to accurately identify it. That's the first step toward recovery. We're going to note four things this evening. 
four things under this theme. First of all, the symptoms. So first of all, the symptoms. When you get sick, what happens? Well, you, you begin to recognize it because maybe you lose your appetite. You become restless. You become sapped of energy and worn down, or you feel some part, pain in a part of your body. You get a tickle in the back of your throat, or you begin to feel you know, pain in your chest or something else in your head. And you, you recognize that this is a problem, that there's something that is, that is, that is coming on. When there's not, um, as Peter says, that desire for the sincere milk of the word, in order that we might be trained by it, in order that we might be led to see the preciousness of Christ, when that appetite is not there, we know something is dreadfully wrong. And so spiritually, we find ourselves at times in a condition of formality. Outward you know, we're, we're very content with, with outward practice while having an absence of inward exercise, right? There's a deadness over our souls. There's a, a numbness, a coldness, an insensitivity where we're brought to realize there's, there's something dreadful that's changed, an alteration in, in our hearts. Right? We think of prayer. Prayer, as the Puritans said, is the breath of life. This is the breath of the Christian life. What happens when you take your breath away? Well, ultimately you would die, right? You would, you would ultimately die. You're in serious trouble. And so often this is a symptom. You know, the, the Christian begins to depart from the exercise of the soul in secret prayer. This is a sign of a spiritual Malady. The Lord speaks about in Matthew 24, the, the love of many waxing cold. It's that idea, wintertime in the soul, the decrease of vigor of faith, the decrease of a sense of need for the Lord to increase our, our faith. For some people, they begin playing with doctrinal novelty and errors. Anyone who is vibrant and loving and holding the truth as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ will be leery of such temptations. But there can be apathy and complacency and indifference. There can be a contentment with the status quo. And so we're outwardly, we're reading our Bible, but without meditation, without actually seeking God's face in it. We're praying without actually desiring what we ask for or believing that the Lord can provide it. We're confessing sin without lamenting it. We're going through our duties out of, <clears throat> out of habit, not out of deep love for the bridegroom. We, we begin to play with the idea uh, of temptation rather than fearing it as fire in our, in our laps. And yet even these things, these, these sorts of symptoms can be very tricky. They can be very tricky. Because you, you go to Revelation chapter 2, which we preached through probably a year ago or something, in <clears throat> that opening section addressing Ephesus. And he describes Ephesus and he says, look, you are, <clears throat> you're working hard. You're super diligent and active in Christian service. You're laboring uh, for the Lord and for the Lord's people and so on and so forth. And if that's not enough, you have doctrinal fidelity. You're holding fast to, to the truth, right? <clears throat> you have discern, moral discernment. You recognize those who say they're apostles and are not, and you've exposed them for my namesake and so on. And so there's, there's all those things that are there. Active in service, doctrinally faithful, doing, 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 engaged in ministry. And for all of that, the Lord still tells them that he has this one thing against them. They have left their first love. They've left their first love. And we can cover backslidings with all sorts of outward activity. Right? Office bearers can do their thing and carry out all their responsibilities. And men can be 
you know, leading their families in terms of worship and, and so on and so forth. And moms can be teaching their kids their catechism and their Bible. And all of this, all of this activity can sometimes be like medicine that masks, you know, the symptoms rather than dealing with the root problem. The Lord warns us against that. You know, we're not to judge by mere externals. We're to examine our souls in terms of humility and zeal and contriteness and spiritual mindedness and delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for all that is his self-denial and the cultivation of the soul and so on. And it's probing those depths that will give clear insight into our hearts. Is it that your conscience is only bothered over gross failures? Or is there a, a vitality which gives spiritual sensitivity to even small sins against the Lord? In other words, are we, is there a tenderness or is there a callousness? You know, are we, are we strict on the incidentals? Are we very strict on the incidentals, but loose and lax? when it comes to the substantial matters of holiness. So after all, there are those who, you know, they can, they can sort out all sorts of detailed, even esoteric principles, which may indeed be biblical. And they can devote their life and energy and mind to these things. And yet there'd be little humility, little patience, little self-denial, little godliness. You know, do we at times feel afraid to consider certain duties seriously in case our conscience should be rebuked from the neglect? You know, one who has an undue uh, critical spirit in dealing with others while padding and excusing themselves. Do you chafe under preaching? When it touches an area of weakness in your own life, do you desire the approval of your parents, your spouse, your friends, your minister, elders, whoever else, more than you seek the approval and glory of God in the secret place? Are you more afraid of encountering scorn by offending men rather than offending God? More interested in our religion out there in society than we are that which is seen by men, in other words, than we are the religion that is at home and that is seen by our families. Do we redefine things? We redefine sloth as prudence in order to excuse ourselves, right? All of this is, these are danger signs. These are warnings, these that are coming to us. And we need to be mindful of them. Confessing, our, confessing sin without forsaking sin and so on. These are symptoms. All of this gives us help in terms of recognizing symptoms. But then secondly, we need to exercise some discernment in distinguishing or separating this backsliding from other things that can be mistaken for it. So misdiagnoses, if, if you will. Right? We need to distinguish backsliding from other things in our, in our experience because there are other things that, that can have similar symptoms on the face that you would say looks like this sort of thing. Looks like backsliding when perhaps it's not. You know, a person can think that they're having a heart attack and they're in a dead panic and they're yelling to everyone and they're rushed to the ER and so on. And the doctor, they're, they're rushed into the ER and the doctor examines them and he says, no, you're, you're actually not having a heart attack. You know, you have gas built up in your system or you have angina or something else. And yeah, there's pain in your chest and it's radiating and there are similar symptoms, but it is not the diagnosis of a heart attack. Every spot on your body is not evidence of chickenpox. 
And so we need to be able to distinguish this backsliding from, from things that are similar to it. And I'm going to give you a handful of these in terms of pastoral care. The first is distinguishing backsliding and reading it in our condition from purely analyzing our feelings. So these are, this is an important distinction. There's a, there's a difference between our feelings and the true state or condition of our soul. So sometimes we, we judge based only on feelings, and that's a, that's a problem, right? It's, a actually, it's actually a mistake in both directions because you may very well feel like you don't have a horrible disease, and you may think that you're doing great and that you're thriving and doing wonderful, and you're not. And so banking on those feelings is of little help. And it can go the other way as well. So we can, we can feel weak and think that we're weak in faith and that we're struggling, that we're full of sin and have all these other problems and so on, and actually not be in the condition that we, we think that we are, right? There are times when we have strong measure of faith and we, we recognize that ordinarily, when we have a strong measure of faith, it will result in a more comfortable sense of our condition. So that's, that's ordinarily true. That's often true. And likewise, if we're in a weak condition, weak, weak in grace, we'll, we'll feel uncomfortable sense of our condition. But that is not a, a foolproof thing. And so we... It can be that we're in the dark, that we're under difficulties and circumstances, and yet the Lord is exercising us in ways that we don't see so, so readily. Our feelings are low, but our soul is actually high. I mean, you look at Job, and he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He's at a very low point in his feelings, and yet he's strong in faith. You think of Micah chapter 7, uh, verse 8 Micah 7, verse 8, where he's, he's speaking about uh, the enemy not rejoicing over him. And he says in verse 8, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be light unto me. So he's under consternation, and yet his soul is being exercised. Do you think of the woman of Cana, right? the Syrophoenician woman? And she's at a low ebb, and yet there she is, whimpering, whispering, as it were. Even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from under the master's table. She's in a low condition, but Jesus says she's exercising strong faith. And so we may have easy times in life with a high spirit and feel good and so on and be actually very low in faith and grace. So the question is not, not first and foremost... What do I feel? That has its place. But not what do I feel only. The question is, are you walking with the Lord? Or are you engaging in sins of omission and commission? You know, do your feelings actually cause you to lay down the weapons in warfare? Or do they cause you to fly to the Lord Jesus Christ for help? My point is that there's something deeper than merely what sits on the surface of our feelings. So it's helpful for us, I think, to distinguish those. A second distinction is that, that this backsliding needs to be distinguished from confusing conflict with sin and submitting to sin. Even a castle can be assaulted. The strongest castle can be assaulted, though, though it's not overthrown. When you think of Paul in Romans 7, he's wrestling, he's struggling, he's feeling the battle in himself over sin, and he's saying things like, Oh, wretched man that I am. I mean, he's feeling the evil of his, of his own sins. And yet he is in the battle against that sin. And the Christian will feel their sin more and more. And yet the struggle 
is being kept up. And that may be the case in terms of vitality more than when the struggle is not felt for the Lord's people. We're under pressures of temptation, and yet we labor on. So the sense of an overwhelming conviction of sin, the burden of sin, and so on, is not enough in itself. Question is, what is the Christian's response to that? We obviously can run faster when the wind is on our back than when it's in our face. Another distinction is distinguishing the body uh, from the soul. So, back, spiritual backslidings from physical maladies. Right? We have in this body tremendous weakness, we have complexities, which even the doctors have not come close to plummeting the depths of over all the centuries. There's sickness, and that does, that, that's different from a, a state of spiritual declension, because if you're sick with the flu, in bed, with a fever, and you're weak, and so on, and you're, you're struggling because you don't feel as if your heart is on fire for the Lord, it may be the flu and that spiritual declension, right? That influence of the body over our person casts its own shadow. And so we need to be careful with regards to this. And I, we need to be careful with one another. There needs to be a, a tenderness and a, and a spiritual skillfulness in helping one another, you know, for, for dear people who, you know, those who are on fourth stage cancer are struggling in ways that they wouldn't be struggling in quite different circumstances. You know, there are those who, who, who may have, you know, a physical-induced and um, depression, not just a, a spiritual depression, and all that comes with that. And we need to recognize that at times there's a, a biological origin and there's a spiritual origin, be able to discern the, the difference. We may feel when we're sick or we have a protracted illness or something else, we want to place all the emphasis on the, the departure of our soul with a rather naive and simplistic uh, overlooking of the role of, of the physical body. It's not to say that the, the, the body being sick gives us a free pass, not at all. Don't misunderstand me. We are to exercise our souls earnestly in the context of sickness. Indeed, it's a time of escalated growth often for the Lord's people. My point is rather different than that. My point is, it blends over with what we were thinking about feelings, right? It, 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 there's a, there's a, the impact of being aware of our physical limitations and health and how that can contribute. The Puritans were actually brilliant at this. I mean, they wrote extensively on this very point, distinguishing uh, the things of, of the body and of, of the soul. And you have, of course, examples of this throughout history. I mean, Spurgeon would be a prime example. Godly man, very spiritually exercised, diligent, cheerful in his disposition, amiable, and so on, and yet carried some very heavy burdens uh, physically in his, in his ministry. Another area is to distinguish this backsliding from uh, the decrease of strong affections, increase and de decrease of strong affections. Sometimes um, a change in the expression of our affections can actually be a mark of maturity. You think of James and John, right? They're standing there with Jesus and they're saying, Lord, we want, you know, let cause the Lord to, to rain down fire from heaven. You know, turn these people to ash because they've, they've rejected you. You know, we're passionate about your glory and so on. And Jesus says to them, you don't have the right spirit. You've got, lots of, you've got lots of zeal. You've got lots of earnestness and all of that. But you don't have the right spirit within you. And of course, they grow and mature. That zeal is still there, but it finds more mature expressions. And they're given more of the Holy Spirit. And it brings some of those things into, into check. We recognize as well a difference between this backsliding and what we call spiritual desertion, 
right? This is too big of a topic to really open up, but think in terms of our, our, our worldly experience. There's four seasons in the year. Spiritually, the Lord in his sovereign good pleasure will at times withdraw unprovoked, unprompted by things in our lives, a sense of the manifestation of his presence to us. And he has his sovereign purposes and prerogatives in all of that. You think, you know, by the end of winter, you're dying for spring. You can't wait to throw open the, the, the windows. You can't wait to switch to short sleeves and do other things and so on. Well, the Lord will sometimes send us into a season of winterland, if you will, in order to intensify our seeking of him, in order to intensify our longing for him, our running after him, and so on. Our free church father, Rabbi Duncan, said many a time, a child of God walks in darkness, not because he is blind, but because it is night with him. So we need to make these distinctions. We also can distinguish this backsliding from total and partial backsliding. And I'll abbreviate my thoughts here. Total ba or partial backsliding is what we're talking about in these sermons. Total backsliding would be equivalent to wholesale apostasy. So wholesale apostasy, right? Someone has a profession of faith, an appearance of, of faith, and yet they, they, then they, they self-consciously repudiate uh, finally definitively the true, the true religion. Judas would be an example, and others. The reason that it's helpful to distinguish this is because where do we find the difference between the two? We don't find the difference between the two in route, along the way, at, at one stop, as it were, in that process. Because these two conditions begin down the same steep slope. The Christian gets partway down, realizes, is recovered, and goes back up the hill seeking the Lord. Whereas the reprobate, the hypocrite, continues down, 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 past all the turning points, ultimately plummets into a lost eternity. Those with outward privileges and, and without the inward reality. What distinguishes the two is the fact of recovery. The spiritual recovery by the Spirit. The unbeliever can continue without pain of conscience, right? They can have a misplaced hope of some early profession or something else, and yet never depart from sin or know the Lord because they never had the root of the matter to begin with. Thirdly, we need to consider the steps of backsliding. Thirdly, the steps of backsliding. How is it that this process unfolds? How do we experience it? You know, we begin with grace. We, we think to ourselves as a person who's first converted, utterly impossible that we would ever be cold toward this one whom our soul loves, never weary in the work of loving and serving him. This is all that will ever be. You think of Jeremiah 3, the Lord describes his people as starting off all their early espousals of, of, of divine love and so on. He says, remember the kindness of your youth. And, and you know, in chapter 2, even the beginning of chapter 2, verse 2, he speaks of this. The vibrance, the love, the intensity of affection and so on. Thinking that they'll never, never forget the impression of these divine things. And yet they find themselves struggling. You know, you look at, at young Christians and their zeal is, is precious. And it should be viewed as precious by those who have been long in the way and who have walked long with the Lord. You ought to view all of that, those, those early stages of zeal as precious. Shame heaped upon shame for anyone who seeks to curb or quench that zeal. The zeal of a young Christian, even if it's misdirected at times. Let's bless the Lord for it. We don't go to a peach tree and then look and say, well, this peach is green and it's hard and it's no good. Let's pull it and throw it away. It's not what we do. We say, just wait. It needs more sun. It needs more rain. It needs more nourishment. 
It's going to become luscious, soft, juicy, delectable fruit. And so we need to give the, the, those who are in the earliest spousals a great space in these, in these things. But we recognize, right, that the garden has to be tended to. Whether you have a vegetable garden, you have a flower garden, whatever it is, it requires a lot of work. And if you leave it, what happens, right? It's going to turn into a disaster. It will decline. Weeds will grow up like crazy and, and so on. And, and some of us have done this, right? You, you walk away and you think, well, it'll be fine. You leave it for a week and it turns to a few weeks and months, whatever. And you come back and here all these, these weeds have come up. They've choked out the light. They've stolen all the moisture. They've robbed the nutrients and so on. And it took no work for the weeds to grow. They, they grow easily on their own. If we're left to ourselves, this is our, our condition, right? Left unattended, left uh, without exercising our souls. This is, this is what happens. Life is like paddling up a, a stream, right? You have to dig deep with your paddle and scoop water and continue to push and push and push. But if you decide that you're tired and you put your paddle in the boat, just do nothing. And you'll go backwards. With the Christian life, if you leave it, you will go back downstream, the opposite direction that you intended. It's true that sometimes we can have unexpected, surprising temptations that, that spring out upon us. But most of the time, it is slow. It is gradual. It is an incremental process. Little by little by little by little, we decline away from the Lord. It becomes easy to go through the motions. I mean, this is, this is why red prayers, which are terrible, this is why red prayers are so popular. Because all you have to do is run your eye over the page. You know, the paper does the thinking for you. You don't have to exercise your soul. Your, your, your heart isn't leading your mouth at all. You can go through the motions and you can go into your inner closet of secret prayer without longing for the Lord and go through the motions even without red prayers. Rather than being alert, rather than being alarmed at what we find, rather than saying there's a problem here because I'm not longing after the Lord, we say, no, no, it's just do my duty. And that's, that's good, good enough, right? This is the first major step. We go through words without our, and our, we, we draw near with our mouth and our heart is far from the Lord. And then we begin to shorten our secret prayer. And then there are those who drop secret prayer altogether. But my friend, if you do not pray at all in secret, then you have serious reason to, to ask whether you're in a state of grace at all. You can't not breathe and be alive. You can't not pray and be a Christian. For the Lord's people, you are at least in a very deep state of spiritual declension. We can't play games and somehow think that there's another explanation. The fact is that when you're in such a condition, you're not in a position to see clearly anything anyway and to make judgments and so you think of all the means of grace, right? Even church attendance. And then what happens is because things are waning in the secret place and secret worship, we, we're content to allow public worship to replace as a substitute for private worship. Or if we keep it up at family and in private, we read through it without relish. You know, the promises don't strengthen us. The warnings don't terrify us. Christ is not our source of life and joy. All of this begins to multiply. We're not saying to the Lord, search me and know me, examine me, take the spotlight of the word of God and go through my soul and hunt out and uncover the inner crevices of my heart. Instead, we excuse sin. We'll even go to the length of defending our sins, redefining our sins, tolerating our sins. And there's a double life. Persons at a low ebb. Secret sins become enjoyed. So now it's not just that the, the spouse has kind of weaned their affection from their love, from their, the, the, their, their, 
their intimate lover whom they've been wed to in vows before God. It's not just that. That happens. And then all of a sudden, others begin to attract attention. And the heart has become cold here and it becomes alive to others. And so they're, you know, people begin entertaining in their head and then kind of dancing on the outskirts with flirtation and so on. And one thing leads to another. This is the danger of the soul with regards to the whole Christian life. Whoredoms and adultery in relationship to our marriage to Christ. Offending God is not a burden. Self-examination is either less and less thorough or non-existent. We begin to adopt rather the mentality and the customs of the sinful world and the pleasures of the world around us. And we, you hear, you know, you begin to say to yourself, well, this world is God's world and, and such like. And yet it becomes the most important thing in all of your interests and time and recreation. And it grows bigger and bigger until it consumes everything and displaces more and more the Lord who is to be everything. And lo and behold, you are no different than Israel prostrating yourself before idols in adulterous love for them. You may begin to depart from sound doctrine, believing a lie, seeking relief in the distractions of worldly amusement, relaxing the rule of conduct that God has given to us while being severe in criticism of others. Your darling sins are tolerated. Here's the ship. It's got a leak. And if no one's pumping the water out, it's going to the bottom of the sea. That's where we find ourselves. In a weakened state, we are more susceptible to other sins that we wouldn't have been otherwise. Our defenses are down. Our immune system spiritually has collapsed. We're vulnerable to falling into greater sins. Not to mention the fact that our lack of spiritual Life is contagious. Our family is affected. Your children are affected. Your spouse is affected. Your friends are affected. The church is affected. It begins to spread. There's worldliness and coldness and formality that dominates. And Satan is no bystander in all of this. Right? He's pouring fuel on the, on the flames all the time. And at times it leads to a fall. To gross and scandalous sin. And there's no strength left. And down men and women go into these, these sins. These are steps. Fourthly, there's the source. The source of backsliding. We think of you know, those with heart problems. They may have shortness of breath. But that shortness of breath is, is not the problem. It's a symptom, right? Heart disease is, is the problem. So we need to be analyzing with regards to spiritual backsliding, not just kind of tinkering with symptoms and even recognizing the steps, but what's going on underneath it all? What's the cause of this? What, what, where is the source of all of this? Where is this springing from deep inside? We need to identify root problems in, in beginning the recovery process. Right? Self-examination, as I said, is something like the doctor does. He's got to come through running tests and so on. Blood work that's sent to the lab and whatever. Looking at your lungs and sticking the little thing in your mouth and looking in your ears and whatever else. You know, what's going on? What's wrong? What's broken with you? It's the same with us spiritually. All backsliding in its essence is departure from God. Thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee. But the point of departure can vary from one person to another, and from one circumstance to another. So let me hurry up and give you a few root, root um, problems or sources. The first is pride. This is an easy one. The first is, is spiritual pride. The Bible says that God resists the proud, and he gives more grace to, to the humble. And so pride repels us from the Lord, whereas grace draws us to, to the Lord. And so there can be spiritual pride. Someone can look at their doctrinal acumen. They can look at their gifts. They can look at what they see as a measure of grace. And all of that stuff can seduce them. They can look at their family and say, well, our family is, you know, 
Got all these good things, right? Look at my circumstances in this part of my life or the other part of my life. And it lulls to sleep with self-gratification, self-congratulation. We begin to think to ourselves, not in overtly explicit and flagrant ways, but we begin to think to ourselves, well, we're doing pretty well. We've come a long way. We're doing better than so-and-so or this other person. And the Lord tells us those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. It becomes like a film, pride does, over our mind and over our heart. It leads to spiritual amnesia, to forgetfulness. Remember Deuteronomy 7 and 8? That's the whole line of thought there. I'm giving you all these blessings. You're going to go and you're going to get full of yourself and think, look, look what I've achieved. And you're going to forget me, the Lord says. Spiritual forgetfulness. Instead of day by day walking low, stooping as we go, walking in humility, keeping, a, keeping up a sense of our dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, focusing on the fact that Christ, Christ, Christ alone is our all-sufficiency. Recognizing that everything in our life hangs by one single string, and that is what attaches us to Christ and his love. Another root problem is worldliness. In evangelicalism, they've taken this concept of worldliness and distorted it into something not found in the Bible, of course, right? So they begin to redefine it in terms of a list of extra-biblical extra regulation and, and rules. And the, and the Bible warns us about that, adding to his word. But the Reformed swing the other direction in reaction to that. And instead, the, the, the Reformed basically toss worldliness out altogether and begin to think that conformity to the world, its ways, its thinking, its appetites, its pursuits and manner of life and speech and everything else is perfectly fine, that we can put a, the stamp of the Lord's name over these things and so on. The Bible warns about the seriousness of worldliness the intoxicating nature of the things of this world. Worldliness means that we have lost our love for Christ by exchanging it and replacing it with our love for the world. Right? This is James 4. Friendship with the world is adultery. And friendship with the world is enmity with God. Worldliness strikes at the first commandment. In the first table. And so you go back to that marriage relationship, right? The one that's given here in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And, you know, there's intense love and affection and intimacy within a godly marriage. And it's cultivated. But what if one spouse begins to transfer their affection to someone else? And their love for their spouse is replaced by love for someone else. You know what that means, right? That is adultery. The Lord says this is the nature of, of backsliding. It is harlotry. It is whoredom. It is leaving the irresistibly beautiful fellowship and intimacy, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, and trading, trading it for the trash of this perishing world, placing our affections on things below, covetousness, which kills actually mentioned in, in, this, in this section. Covetousness kills, doesn't it? The neglect of the doctrine of the cross, which mortifies love for the world, is left off, neglected, laid aside. Third area, quickly, is self-centeredness, a third root cause. The Lord Jesus Christ is not at the center of our world. And the pursuit of his glory is not our chief end and our chief delight. That's a root problem. Ourselves and our own interests and our own appetites and our own pleasures and our own ends and our own goals and our own achievements begin taking that place. And we become lax in the things of the Lord. One of the Puritans said that a, a lazy Christian 
will quickly prove a dying Christian. We need watchfulness over ourselves. You know, women are taught, you know, every year you're to look and you're to, you know, do the procedure, examination or whatever for breast cancer so that you can catch it early. You know, someone says, well, I don't care. You know, they, they don't pay any attention. Well, that's opening up to vulnerability, isn't it? This is what happens when there's no self-examination in the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, investigating and under the lens and light of God's word, a desire to know the Lord more deeply in, in, in the relationship of his grace. There's a problem. We need to be closer to Christ. And the greater and the closer that we are to the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater we will have a sense of our own sin. This lack of watchfulness running along, looking up at the sky, paying no attention to where you're going, and then, head, and then going clear off a cliff, down a steep descent, getting battered and bruised. The Lord warns us about this, protecting sins, however small they may be. We need to root out self-centeredness rather than an all-absorbing, all-consuming focus that centers on Jesus Christ. Well, these are a few things that help us with regards to recognizing uh, spiritual backsliding. You can see how the Lord is dealing mercifully with us in these things. I mean, the Lord is the great physician, and he's coming. And there you are as, as a believer, and you may, it may be little degrees, moderate degrees, great degrees. And you think, but, but to whatever degree, you think to yourself, I'm becoming cold, formal. There's a dryness. There's an indifference, an insensitivity. The soul is sliding into instant, its insensitivity in terms of love and devotion to the Lord and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see what's happening? God's coming and he's dealing mercifully with us. He's bringing these things to our attention. God is actually unveiling his love to us. The fact is that if, if any of us are here as Christians... And we say, you know what? The Lord is searching me out here. The Lord is, is touching things in my soul. Then you have every reason for your soul to swell with hope. Because if the Lord is at the work, if the Lord is at work in convicting you, it is evidence that he is preparing to heal you. The Lord intends in love to seek you out and to recover his believing people, his bride. He's the one who pursues and pursues relentlessly. He's the one, as we'll see next week, who says, come to me with your backslidings. Bring all of them, everything with you. Bring it, all of it. I will love you freely. I will heal you mercifully. If we've left our first love to one degree or another, and yet we are in a state of grace, then you are still married to Jesus. The bonds are still there. And the Lord is pleased to bring us back to himself. Christ loves our love. He loves for us to glory in his glory. And he'll go to the extents of the whole universe in order to attain and produce that love in our own souls. He will do in us and with us and for us in order to produce love for him, his love for him. Well, this helps us at least to wade out into the waters of recognizing this form of spiritual backsliding. If the Lord helps us, we'll go on next week to think about how is it that we're recovered from these circumstances. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, the God who is love, who has loved infinitely and eternally, thyself, and within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelling in the bonds of love, 
a God who has broken out and into this world to come in love to redeem poor needy sinners and to envelop them in thine own love, to bring believing sinners into the fellowship of thy love. O Lord, these are matchless mercies. And how overwhelmingly repugnant every degree, every sin is that takes the hearts of thy people from thyself to anything else. O Lord, we confess it for the abomination that it is, for the whoredom that it is. Help us to see it, to own it, to recognize it. And grant, O God, that in the abundance of thy mercy, deliver us from it. Recover, revive, restore our souls. Inflame our hearts with love for the Redeemer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.